Well, we're going to go ahead and get started now with the parasha of Korah. And um, what we're witnessing in so far, I don't know if you noticed with the, with the Torah portions, it reveals something very beautiful. And since the time that Israel became redeemed from Egypt, up to this point right now, we're noticing that they're experiencing different challenges as they go through each stage in the wilderness. And I believe that that is a revelation in itself for us. Because, you know, again, we always allude, and even the sages of Israel allude the wilderness experience with this life here in the world that we live in today. So, you know, I want you to think about this from a prophetic point of view. You accepted Jesus as your Messiah, your Savior, you became redeemed. Well, immediately after that, you proceeded to go into this wilderness experience, which is what everybody's been going through ever since. And I think that what's amazing is that last week's parasha, Shalak Lecha, uh, we ended up with what? The commandment to wear the zitzits in the four corners of our garments so that we can remember the commandments. And what was the purpose for that? Well, if we remember that there was a rebellion also somewhat taking place in last week's parasha. And you're going to notice that through the book of Numbers, this just like numerous rebellions in and out through each, each chapter. And it's revealing something very amazing because this picture of salvation, we always think that it's going to be all colorful and beautiful, and it's quite the opposite, folks. You know, <laughs> once you get into salvation, it's when you really face the problems. And the Father is addressing different issues uh, as we go along. We're dealing with a lot of unfaithfulness for the most part. You know, last week's parasha, we dealt with the spies, right? And bringing the bad report, you know, and think about this, folks. How many times we do that to the Lord? How many times we say to the Lord, you know what, I, I really don't care for your gift, <laughs> so to speak. You know, we have to be careful because these are all each topics that in the wilderness experience the Father is revealing to us that we are to take to our heart and learn from it. Now we're picking up this week with Korah. Now we're going to be ta talking about the issues of leadership within the community, and I think that's very important as well. I mean, it's not just within the community of Israel and Israel rebelling against Moses as they lived last week. But now we're going to get a little bit more personal. And what is the purpose of all this? I believe that there's a great, great message in the whole book. God is addressing each topic through this wilderness so that we can what? What is the idea? So that we can learn, not just learn, but also it is to restore back. Things to holiness, folks. I mean, we're always talking about we want to be a people who is holy and that is set apart. And I believe that God doesn't, God doesn't just sit here and tell you, okay, this is holiness and this is what you need to do. But rather through life experiences, he teaches us what he expects from a holy generation, folks. So this is, this week we pick up with now Korah. And, you know, I want to start off with uh, bringing this parasha, uh, this scripture, and that is Isaiah 56, 11. And it says this, the dogs have a mighty appetite, it says. They never have enough. Very interesting. But they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way. Each to his own gain, one and all. And that is the basis why I started this teaching today with Isaiah 56, 11, 
because what we have in here with the story of Korah, or rather with the historical account of Korah, we have lots of Korahs out here today, folks. The world is full of Korahs right now. But in order for us to say you are Korah, we need to identify the spirit of Korah, which is very important. Very important to identify that spirit of Korah because if you can identify the spirit of Korah, then you can also identify the spirit of Hasatan, believe it or not. Because there is, believe it or not, there is a connection in here with the story of Lucifer, believe it or not. And folks, what does scripture always teaches us? That the things that are bound in heaven, they are bound on earth, vice versa. It is a reflection. So what we see right now in our realities here in life, it is the realities of what's taking place in the heavenlies now. And the things that were are the things that are and will be as well. So all this serves for us as a what? Teaching tools so that we can understand and not make the errors that our, fortunately some of our fathers did in past times. So with that said, we're going to go ahead and start with the parasha. Number 61 says, Now Korah, the son of Itzad, son of Kohat, Datan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, son of Pelet, sons of Reuben, took Manasseh. It's very, very interesting, folks, because the way this reason Hebrew says, Vaikach Korach. That's how it literally opens up. It says, Vaikach Korach. And, well, let's start with, first of all, Korah. What does it mean to be a Korah? What is association with Korah? Well, <clears throat> literally, it means something that is bald. Or it can even mean something that is ice, depending on the context that you're speaking, okay? So, in 1828, the 1828 Webster's, however, defines this as something that's mean, naked, base, without dignity or value. Let's put it this way. Something that is bald means that there is no what? No covering overall, yes. No hair. But, you know, the baldness indicates that there is no covering. In other words... Your covering has been lifted up, so to speak. So now you're going around bald, which the 1828 Webster does a very good job at putting as something as naked. You are with no dignity or with no value. So that kind of gives us a little share as to what is the character of this guy named Korah now. You know, he is without covering. He is cold as ice, as they say in America, right? So we're going to see really what's taking place in here. So what did Korah do exactly? What was the issue here with Korah? All right? We're going to see something in here. Well, what Korah did was, first of all, Vaikah. That's the first thing that he did. And what is Vaikah? Well, Vaikah means to be taken away. And essentially means to be removed. What did Korah did? Korah removed himself by being taken away, essentially. Essentially, he separated himself. You know, folks, if we're going to separate, because there's a such thing as separation in Scripture, but let's keep everything in context. If we separate, let it be for very, very good reasons. Let it be for issues of uncleanness in the camp. Let it be because there's idolatry being practiced habitually within the camp, uh, or at least within the leadership or in the congregation, or in the camp for that matter. But what we're going to see something that is interested is that Korah removed himself completely. He separated himself. And by doing that, 
he became what we call bald, uncover essentially. That's why he's called Korah. Because by removing himself from the covering, what ended up happening? He became exposed. Look. Jeremiah 12, 10 through 11 says, Many shepherds have destroyed my vineyard. They have trampled down my portion. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. That word there for desolate wilderness carries on the same connotation as being bald. It means naked. It means being bare, sort of to speak. They have made it a desolation, desolate. It mourns to me. The whole land is made desolate, but no man lays it to heart. So one of the things that we're noticing in here with Jeremiah in connection with this portion of Korah is that with Korah, we're not just talking about just anybody separating himself for the assembly, but the character of Korah also carries something that's very important for us to know. Korah persuaded 250 men, but was it just ordinary men? No, they weren't. They were actually 250 men of renown. In other words, they were leaders within the congregation of Hashem in the wilderness, folks. I think that is really, really something to really meditate on. Because, I mean, even like today, even within the churches today and, you know, in the body in general, how often do we read and how often do we know about or we hear about congregations falling apart. I mean, that's very common nowadays, right? I mean, it's super common, more common today than probably in past years. And one must ask, why is this happening? And the whole thing is that the fallouts of the congregation typically are not necessarily with the members, but the fallout is usually with the leadership. You know, it starts with the head and it trickles down to the rest of the body. So, Korah persuaded 250 men of renowned leaders, folks. These were men who had responsibilities within the camp. That's number one. Korah was a Levite, as we know, a Kohatite and a cousin of Aaron. He was given the task to carry the glory of Hashem, folks. Think about that. You know what this is also teaching us thus so far, and I know we're still too early in the teaching, but right off the bat, folks, I want you to think about this. If you're not content in your life, folks, it could create a core on you. Maybe not necessarily that you are in leadership in, the, in a church, but let's put it this way. If the Lord has given you an allotment in His kingdom, you have a responsibility to fulfill it. You can't say, well, it's not enough, I want something else. Because that kind of goes along the line with what Korah did. And I'm going to even submit something even further than that. That goes along the line of what Lucifer also did. And I'm going to make the connection here soon. But this spirit, folks, it's very, very, and it's very rampant, just, not just among leaders in the body, but also within the members as well. We need to be very careful, folks, because one of the things that's persuading Korah at this point is his lack of contentment where he's at. Let's face it, because if he was content where he was at, there will be no need for Korah because he's happy doing what he's doing. He's okay with 
actually carrying out the glory of Hashem. There will be no need for a revolt. There will be no need for a revolution. Now would it? So let's continue looking on in here and see what the Father has for us. And the Midrash Rabbah expounds on this. It says the expression taking, because it says that Korah took 250 men. One must ask, how did he take 250 men? Did he go in there with an assault weapon? You know, did he pull a gun on their faces and said, come and follow me or else? What does this take means? Look. In the Midrash it says this, the expression taking cannot but denote drawing along with persuasive words. You see, the problem with this, folks, is that our enemy out there never comes with his true colors. Because that will be too easy. You will see him coming. But the enemy that we are fighting, the one that you can't see, is the one that comes as an angel of light. As scripture says. So how is it that Korah took these men? Well, he didn't say, come with me, I'm bullying you, you're going to do this or else. But rather he came with persuasive words. You know what, Mark? That tie looks really good on you today. I love those colors, man. You know, you look like an executive. You know, I bet you you can run this better than Moses. That's usually the way it is. Compliments, folks. Flattery words. Wow. You know what, Mick? <laughs> you really should be leading worship, you know. That's the way it is. Typically, folks, it's always about persuasive little words. Uh, and, you know, I, I guess a lot of us can actually associate with this because we all been in corporate America, right? And we know how corporate America operates, right? You know, you got the brown nosers, you know, in corporate America and the ladder. And that's how they get up in the ladder. It's all about flattery of words. Let's face it. Usually the guys who are up there are not really the guys who earned it. The guys who are really working hard. But it's rather who they know and, you know, how much persuasive words they do. It's along the same way, folks. So let's continue in here. It says in here, um, so it's talking about being persuasive words. All the chiefs of Israel and the Sahedrin haven't been drawn after him. So these persuasive words were not just for the average person. This was actually the Sahedrin at that time in the wilderness. Okay. Thus, in the case of Moses, it says, and Moses and Aaron took these men. So the, the, the Midrash is giving an example of that word took, what it looks like. Numbers 117. Similarly, Take Aaron and his sons with him. Also in Numbers chapter 8 2. This bears out the explanation that now Korah took means that he drew their hearts with persuasive words. And that's the intention of the enemy. Is the enemy is always going to try to attack your heart. And how does he do that? How can he get to your heart? Well, he's not going to force his way to your heart any more than Korah did, folks. He's going to flatter his way into your heart. So let's continue in here. What moved him to start a quarrel? They ask in the Midrash. What moved him to start a quarrel? He was moved to it by the fact that Elizapath, okay, the son of his father's brother, was appointed prince over his family, as it says in Numbers chapter 3, 30. Okay. 
Korah argue, my father was one of four brothers, as it says, and the sons of Kohath, Amram and Itzar and Hebron and Uziel. Okay, and we see that in Exodus chapter 6, 18. As for Amram, the firstborn, his son Aaron attained to greatness and Moses to royalty. Who then should rightly take the next office, he asked. Is it not the next in age, essentially? Is it, uh, is it said, and these sons of Kohat, Amran and Itzar, now I, being the son of Itzar, should by right be the prince of the families. Yet Moses appointed the son of Uziel. Shall the youngest of my father's brother be superior to me? This is, the Midrash is kind of putting, filling in the blanks what possibly Korah was actually saying to Moses in here. Behold, I shall dispute his decision and put to naught all that he has been arranged. What is this connecting here? And actually the sages connect this attitude that we see here with um, Korah. They connect this with 2 Samuel which I thought was very interesting. Look, in 2 Samuel 18, 18, it says, Now Absalom, in his lifetime, had taken the same word that Korah did and set up for himself the pillar that's in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. That is a great connection that Hazal makes in here with Korah and actually Absalom. Think about this. What did Absalom do? Who was Absalom? Anybody know? King David's son. And what did he try to do? He tried to overthrow his dad from the kingdom. <laughs> Similar things, folks. And you know, we see this repeated over and over through scripture. So, continuing on in here. So, how do you draw in 250 leaders, men of renown, is the question. Well, the New Testament actually shares a little bit of light on this. For instance, in Jude 1.16 says, These people grumble and complain and live by their own selfish desires. They brag about themselves and flatter others to get what they want. <laughs> that is how you can draw 250 leaders, men of renown, from any given place. It's when you carry that spirit that Jude talks about. And these are the people who are usually the ones who are grumbling and complaining about something. You know, no matter what you do, you never do anything right. You can never possibly do anything right because you're always doing something wrong in one way or the other. And on top of that, they brag about themselves and how great they are. And usually they want to go ahead and flatter others in the same way. So 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4 says this. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Is that happening right now? Absolutely. But having what? Itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. This is exactly what's happening with Korah. Because you see now Korah, Korah is going to have a little following now. Now one must ask, who in the right mind will follow Korah? Well, it says it right here. People who will what? Accumulate teachers for themselves. Who will come in agreement with what? with their own passions, folks. Now you wonder how is it that the body of Christ, it's so upside down the way it is right now. You want to know why? Because of this right here, folks. 
You know, I don't blame so much the Korahs out there, and I don't blame so much the false prophets, because I'm going to share a scripture in here to show you why they do exist to begin with. But look, let's continue on in here. So they will have itching ears, and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off in myths. Isn't that what's happening in here? Now, I want you to pause for a minute. Moses in the wilderness, Korah in the wilderness, two leaders now proclaiming that they have the truth. Korah saying, I'm the rightful one. I'm the one that you should follow. Moses is saying, I'm the one who's been appointed by God, and so is Aaron, the proper order, so to speak. Now, you got a false way, and you got a truth. Now, you got the audience, which is the people. How do they discern it? Think about it. Now, think about this. We're talking about Moses in here. So, prophetically speaking, Moses represents the Torah also. So, are the people choosing leaders that are advocating Torah? Or are they choosing leaders that are not advocating Torah? Because Korah in no way, shape, or form is advocating Torah, folks. And we'll share that in just a minute. But let's move on in here. 2 Thessalonians 2. 9 through 12 says this, the coming of the lawless one, notice that I say, or rather the scripture says, the coming of the lawless one. That's very important for us to know. There is a such thing as a lawful one and a what? Lawless one. You know, hopefully today we'll walk out of here with a different mindset that we don't want to be advocating lawlessness. Because that's never good in scripture. So, you know, we shouldn't be attributing Jesus to doing away with the law. That's a bad thing. Lawless is not a good thing. So look what he says in here. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of who? Satan himself. With all power. Notice what it says. With all power and false signs and wonders. You notice what he's saying right off the top? He's saying that the coming of this lawless one, he's talking about the anti-Messiah. Now, Korah is also a type and shadow of an anti-Messiah as well. Because who is he coming against? Moses, who's a type of shadow of a Messiah. Now, I want you to look at this because it says that the coming of the lawless one, it says it is coming with power, okay, and false signs and wonders. Notice it doesn't say anything about truth in there. Because you see, the lawless one will never come with truth. But he will come with power and wonders and signs. We need to be careful, folks. Because you see, many of us are very easily led by power. We love power. Power, let me tell you, that is the, um, the unfortunately thing that the fall of human beings is power. We all want power. We all want to be powerful. We all want to have that power and that authority. Something that we really need to check our hearts. Because that's the actually the coming of the lawless one is with that right there. And with all wicked deception, it says, for those who are perishing because they refuse to love what? The truth and so be what? Saved. In other words, 
one may sit here and read Second Thessalonians and say, but wow, these people, they don't know any better. They're just being misled. Poor people. Well, let me tell you something, folks. If there's an innocent one in the crowd, God is going to pull him. Trust me. God's not going to sentence nobody to eternal damnation unless they deserve it. I know my Lord, and he's a good judge. I'm not worried about that. But look what it finished up saying in here. Therefore, therefore, why therefore? Let's go back. Because he's saying in here that the lawless one is coming with all these signs and wonders. Okay? And with deception. What is deception? It's truth mixed with lie. Okay? For those who are perishing because they refuse, they refuse. They. Who is they? The people. The people are the ones who are refusing to love the truth. And because of that, therefore, God sends them a strong delusion. That strong delusion is talking about even the power of witchcraft, folks. In other words, that power that the lawless one is going to come with, the signs and the wonders, that's what is going to wrap these people so much that God is going to hand them over exactly to that. Look. So therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. <laughs> Folks, the Father is not going to wrestle with you all life. You want, you want what's false? He's going to give it to you to the 25th power. And he's going to paint it really pretty and hand it right over to you. That's what this is saying, essentially. Paraphrasing here. You want it. You're going to get it. You want power? He will give you power. And he will deliver you into that lie. Look. So that they may believe what is false. In order that all, that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth. But had pleasure in unrighteousness. These are the things that we're looking at, folks. So rebels like Korah, folks, tend to separate themselves. These are, now I'm going to give you the traits of what the Korahs look like. They typically separate themselves from fellowship. That is usually the tail sign right there. Seek out other like-minded rebels. It is amazing. I have personally witnessed this. How familiar spirits work. A rebel can go out there and I guarantee you he will find another rebel out there. I don't care where they're at. They'll find each other out there. Somehow they'll connect. Oh, I bumped into this person in the supermarket. And he feels just like me. Yeah, let's go familiar spirits. You're being handed right over. But that's the whole thing. They seek out other like-minded rebels. And then rise up in defiance and, worst of all, accusation against godly leadership. That's the, your typical chorus right there. Okay, the way of spiritual power, folks, if you really want to know, the way of spiritual power is laid out for us in Acts chapter 242. And this is always the best test that you can put out there for people. Okay, let's read it together and see what it says. Acts 20, uh, 242 says, they spent their time learning from the apostles. Okay, right off the bat, we're starting off in the wrong fruit for a rebel because a rebel doesn't like to submit to anything or anyone. And in here, it opens up by saying, they spent their time learning from the apostles. Those were Yeshua's apostles, by the way. 
Okay? And they were like family to each other. They also broke bread and prayed together. All this, folks, all this is, is speaking in a collective form, not a singular form. This means your gathering, just in case you haven't noticed that. Everyone was amazed by the many miracles and wonders that the apostles worked. All the Lord's followers often met when together, it says, and they share everything they had. One of the things that we need to see in here is that they met together, folks, even, by the way, after Yeshua's death and resurrection. Okay? They would sell their property and possessions and give money to whoever needed it, and day by day, attending temple together and breaking bread in their homes. Not only did they went to the temple together and did fellowship in the temple, after the temple, they would go to their homes and still fellowship. Think about that, folks. I mean, really think about that. Again, a lot of times we just read through this and we don't stop to meditate on what we're reading. These people were gathering a lot. A lot. More than one day a week. I promise you. <laughs> you know, they have the time and they have the will to want to do these things because they understood the importance and the value of gathering together. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. The result of this was what? Spiritual power and anointing, folks. This can only happen as people forsake not the assembling together with themselves. And where do we find that? Hebrews chapter 10.25, by the way. Hebrews 10.25 says that we are not to forsake the assembly, gathering together. Because, folks, when you're not gathering, guess what you're doing? You're scattering. It's automatic. It is the way it is. And function within the spiritual body of Yeshua, submit it one to another. By the way, the apostles at that time would have been somewhat of the leaders of those days. So, you know, this is not advocating everybody do what you think feels right in your own eyes. We're not talking about the time of judges here. <laughs> this is the time of Yeshua, and there was proper order established so that the kingdom can function and operate within holiness. Amen? So, Number 16, 1 and 2 in here. Moving on in here. So it says that he took Itzar, son of Kohat, Le Levi, and Dayton Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and the sons of Pelet, sons of Reuben, took men. So I, I found it interesting that it says the sons of Reuben also. This is really amazing what's taking place in here. Now we understand that Korah has a chip in his shoulder now at this point. Okay, but we're going to find out here something that uh, Abraham and Ezra share something very interesting. It says, this incident happened in the wilderness of Sinai when the firstborns were exchanged for the Levites. You guys remember that? And the Levites were separated to do the divine service in the tent of meeting. Meaning, what he's saying is that the Levites were separated. Remember, prior to the Levites, it was all the firstborn's duty, all the firstborn to be priesthood for Hashem. But because of the incident of the golden calf, when, the, when Moses says, who is for me, the, none of the firstborns stood up. Who stood up? The Levites did. So, because of the Levites standing up and doing this, God said, I'm going to use them as a, somewhat, as a substitution. Because that's what it is, it's a substitution, up to the appointed time. Okay? So, what happened in here? Let's look at this, because this is very interesting. 
So it says, and the Levites were separated to do the divine service in the tent of meeting. For some Israelites, though, that Moses, our master, did this of his own accord so that he could bestow greatness upon his brother. So they're already thinking of Moses or he's just doing, he's using favoritism at this point. He's choosing his brother Aaron because it's his close brother. That's it. That's nothing to do with God is choosing it, but rather it's Moses. And on the children of Kohath, who were his relatives, and on the Levites, since they were all his family. The Levites, nevertheless, joined the conspiracy against Moses because they were given to Aaron and his sons and to Dathan and Abiraman, who were of the tribe of Reuben, joined in the rebellion also. Now, why would they join in the rebellion? Well, he shares something very interesting. Because Moses took away the right of the firstborn from the ancestor, Reuben, and gave it to Joseph. You guys remember that, Exodus 6, 21? When, for instance, Reuben lost the firstborn, right? Okay, well, guess what? These people already had a chip on their shoulders. You got to see how this is working out, how the enemy works. It's like Korah, like he's been overlooked and overpassed. And guess what? Moses took away the firstborn blessing of Reuben. So now they're in the camp too. So guess what? Ooh, match made in heaven. We're victims of Moses now, guys. He keeps taking away from us our blessings. You see, that's how usually it works in the camp. That's usually how it works in the camp. We find victims. That's how it is. It's a predator looking for a victim to go ahead and chew on their brain, chew on their ear, spill evil, speak Lashon Hara, build a case, and there it is. So let's continue on in here. Number 16.3 says, they assemble themselves together. So now that Kohat is, play, uh, Korah is playing this very, very well, now he's got a posse. Now he's got common ground. Now he's got the sons of Reuben, who, they, you know, again, Moses did this to them. So now everybody in here has ammunition. So now he's gathering the posse. Why I'm saying that, folks, is because typically that is the spirit of Korah. You know, if you have an issue with somebody, especially leadership, you go up to the leader. You don't go around forming a posse against the leader. That's a Korah spirit. Remember that, please. That's a Korah spirit. Okay? And that's not the proper order of holiness. So, 16.3, now, now that he's forming this posse, what is happening? They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far, this says. For all the congregation is holy, every one of them. And the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? It's a very common question that today, believe it or not, even in the body is asked. I even heard people saying, we don't even need leaderships today. And believe it, this is in the Messianic movement, by the way. We don't need pastors. We don't need teachers. We don't need nothing. The Holy Spirit teaches us. <laughs> Boy, that's a, that's a dangerous one. That's leading to this right here. We don't need nothing. Well, that's basically what they're saying. Why do we need you, Moses? The Lord is for everybody. And everybody is holy. So what's the difference between me and you? I don't need you. Very, 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 very popular question that today still echoes, I believe. So let's see what happens in here. Rashi says, shares something very interesting. He says, Korah uses the term, all of them are holy as an argument for Moses and Aaron not to exalt themselves over the congregation. But how does this support his point, he asks. 
Perhaps Moses and Aaron are holier than the rest of the congregation and therefore deserve positions of leadership. Rashi explains that what Korah meant by all of them are holy is that all of them experience direct communication from God. Therefore, they have no need for what? Exactly. We don't need an intercessor anymore. Because you see, all of us heard. Now, what Rashi is proposing in here is that they, they all heard from God, literally the voice of God in Mount Sinai, which is true. All Israel heard the Lord on that day. So Rashi is proposing in here is that the fact that Korah said that, he was indicating that everybody in the camp was capable of hearing God. Therefore, why do we need a messenger from God when we can hear from God? Does that make sense? Think about it. If they were all able to hear the voice of God in Mount Sinai, then what Korah is proposing is your position is no longer valid. In other words, Korah is trying to basically eliminate the position of Moses. It's not a position that is needed, nor of Aaron, for that matter. Because we can all hear from the Lord. And if the Lord has something to say, then he'll say it to me, and then I'll follow. That's exactly what's happening in here. So look, Korah was given a responsibility, folks. Okay? He didn't want it. How often do we feel that way? When the Lord gives us something, folks, whether it be a job, whether it be a position within the leadership, whether it be a place where we live, you name it, folks. It doesn't have to be limited to just a church activity. This is life experiences. If you are where you are, it's because God has you here. And if God doesn't have you here, then you're in rebellion. <laughs> Either or. So you have to check yourself one way or the other. Because nothing happens by chance anymore. Do we? we don't believe in just coincidence anymore. I believe that we were a people that once upon a time believed in coincidence. But now we know that those coincidences don't exist. All the steps are ordained by the Almighty, one of Israel. Something to ponder and something to think about, folks. If you are where you are now, and you are not content where you are now, kind of like what Korah was, he was not content where he was at. Then you, you only have two questions to ask yourself. Did I come in here on my own authority? Or has God had me here? And if God has me here, what do I need to do? So, Korah was given this responsibility. He didn't want it. Korah didn't want what God gave him. Boy, that's often happened so much. We don't want what God gives us. He wanted what God gave Moses and Aaron. In other words, Korah was coveting, we can say, his neighbor. You know, kind of like, I want to keep up with the Jones. I want what the Jones have. I don't really like what I have. I want to have what my neighbor has. That's along the same spirit Korah had. Korah didn't like what God gave him. He wanted what God gave Moses and Aaron. So look, here's what is the progression, folks. I want to share this with you. I thought this was very, very important. This is the progression, and this is how this works. Okay, it starts with pride in your heart, which gets wounded and leads to an offense. That's number one. That's usually the, that's usually the foundation. That's usually the root of where these things come from. So it starts with pride in your heart. So what is the first thing that we need to get rid of them? 
the pride in our heart. That's the number one thing, okay? Because that's one of the issues that Korah had. He had pride in his heart. So your pride gets what? Wounded and that leads to an offense. And then what happens? Offense leading to resentment, which leads to what? Bitterness. This is how the system works. This is the, the, the how it all kind of escalates. Okay? So once the offense leads to resentment, which leads to bitterness, which then leads to anger, and once we got angry, what do we do? We separate. That's usually, it's very subtle, but it happens exactly that way. And we have to have eyes to see this. And the only way we're going to have eyes to see this, folks, if we are constantly in the Word of God, and we can discern this. Otherwise, we would, we're going to just call it, oh, it's just facts of life. Yeah, good title, but not true. So look, which then leads to anger and separation, then to uprising, that is removal of the covering. That's what, that's what Korah means, bald, removing of the covering. Then to accusation. Then to rebellion against Hashem ordained authority. That's usually how that works. Now, why am I presenting this this way? Because this is exactly the model and the example of what happened with the fall of Lucifer. You see? Nothing is new under the sun, folks. This is the exact same model that we can use for the fall of Lucifer. And guess what? We have copycat models out there of Lucifer's rebellion all through the world. A lot of times, you know, if I were to ask anybody in this assembly today, or in any assembly, if, if I would get to invited to any assembly, I go to any given church, if I were to say to people, do you want to follow the model and the path of Lucifer? Most people will say, no. We don't want to follow that. But how often do people actually do follow it without even knowing it? Think about it. That's the whole thing. So let's see here. Korah was separated for the purpose of carrying the glory of Hashem. He was to stand and serve the congregation of Israel, folks. What a great honor. His ambition did not allow him to fulfill what God has separated him for. This actually kind of happened, the same thing happened with Samson. You know, Samson could not, well, he fulfilled at the end, but throughout his life, he was not able to fulfill it because of his own pride. Look, Isaiah 14, 12, following in here the example we talked about Lucifer. How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will be like the most high. Who said this? Lucifer. Do you think that this is kind of like the same thing was, was, was echoing in Korah's heart? Think about it. And... If in Korah's heart, we are seeing that also through the rest of the assemblies as well. Even today, folks. Something to really meditate on. Following the same path of Lucifer, folks. 
coarse ambition and pride led him to destruction. He who exalts himself, God will bring him down, folks. And we see that in many, many, many different ways. Look, Isaiah 14, 15, but you are brought down to the grave instead, to the size of the pit. Ezekiel 28, 17, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I expose you. By the way, that word for exposing you, it carries the same connotation in the same weight of Korah, bald, something without a covering. So when you don't have a covering, you are what? Exposed, essentially. I expose you before kings to feast their eyes on you. James 4.10 says, Humble yourself in the sight of the master, and he shall what? See, one of the things that we're having a problem in this generation, folks, is that first and foremost, we don't know how to weigh upon the Lord. We have no idea what it means to wait upon the Lord. We want to do it in our own timing. In other words, I love God, I love His will, but I want it in my timing. That's the problematic. I mean, you can have somebody who loves God that much, and who is zealous for God, and is zealous to do His will, but has no patience. That's problematic, folks. We need to wait upon His timing for these things, and He will be the one to lift you up. 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourself. And how do, we, how do we start by that? Well, we start by, first of all, humbling ourselves. Meekness, folks, and the fear of God is a beautiful combination. That will go, you will go far, far, far in His kingdom. Humble yourself, then under the mighty hand of Elohim, so that He exalts you when? In due time, folks. Do you know that King David was anointed king? by Samuel? You all know that, right? Do you know how long it was before he actually became king, though? Think about that. 20 years! He got ordained. You would think, okay, about a week, I'll take the throne. <laughs> Two, three, maybe? Come on, no more than six months. Think about this. We don't sit down and think about this. David was still a human being, and he was still subject to time like we are. He had to wait. Wait. Well, how long, Richard? I don't know. Wait. Wait. In the meanwhile, enjoy the season that you're in, because if you're not enjoying the season that you're in, that's the problem. Then you become desperate, and now you start doing things on your own authority, because you're trying to run away. Look, number 16, 12, moving on in here. And Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, but they said, we are not coming up. This is very interesting. It is little that you brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey. Did you catch that? Did you catch that? You mean to tell me that they made it to Canaan already? They haven't made it to Canaan. So what are they calling the land flowing with milk and honey? Egypt. You see, because you got to understand the lingo, God calls the land flowing with milk and honey Canaan. You know, the land that they're saying we cannot conquer because of our lack of faith, because there's no way that I can see how that's possible. They're saying that they left the land flowing with milk and honey. They call Egypt now the land flowing with milk and honey. 
We need to be very careful, folks, on what we labeling, what's a blessing and what's not. So look what it says in here. Is it little that you have brought us up out of the land of flowing with milk and honey to kill us in this wilderness, it says, that you would also cease total rule over us? The fact that Moses removed, I'm going to kind of picture this for you. The fact that Moses removed them from their little land of flowing with milk and honey, they already had a grudge against him. So now the fact that Moses is telling, by the way, you kind of, Kind of have to do what I tell you, you know, per the Lord's command. They're not really feeling this at all. Not only did you remove me from my Wi-Fi, 60-inch screen TV, hot tub, garage opener, nice fancy car, up to date with everything. You brought me into this wilderness and now you want to tell me what to do? We laugh, but folks, those are realities in this life. They are realities. So, also, they said, also, by the way, you have not brought us into the land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Would you bore out the eyes of these men? We are not coming up, it says. That kind of gives you an idea of the attitude of these people so far, folks. Now, I'm going to continue reminding you that all this group of people, they were saved by grace. They accepted the atonement of the blood of the Lamb on Egypt. They cried out for redemption. God heard the prayers. God answered the prayers. They are not liking the answer prayers. That's where they are now. Because you see, our understanding of, okay, God, when we, when we pray to God, God, get me out of a situation... What is it that goes through our mind when we say that? I want to challenge you. The next time you ask God, God, pull me out of this situation, please, please be very, very specific. What do you mean by that, God? When I'm telling you, this is what I mean, in other words. Because we need to understand that when we're saying, God, pull me out of this, he's going to be, okay, I'll pull you out of this. I'm going to put you here. When we tell God, I want you to pull me out, are you saying I want you to pull me out and put me where I want to be? Or where you want me to be. Makes a big difference. So look. This kind of caught my eyes when he said, would you bow out the eyes of these men? So, did a little bit of research. And the Hirsch Kumash shares something very interesting. It says, oh, this is what Hirsch actually says about this whole thing. This Everything that we just read now, he's kind of giving a... a um, a synopsis or an explanation, a thesis of what's happening in here. So this is what he says. Upon us, he says, the generation that left Egypt, you have already brought great misfortune by breaking your word. He's basically saying what the people were telling Moses, essentially. Okay? Because remember they said, you have not brought us into the land flowing with milk and honey. And you have not given us vineyards. So basically the people are saying, Moses, you're a liar. That's what Hirsch is pretty much concluding in here. So he says, we left the good land. That's why they call it the land flowing with milk and honey. That's where Hirsch puts it in here, the good land. We left the good land and now we are going to die in the wilderness. As for your further promise that our children will possess the promised land, though we ourselves will not merit to do so, 
in this promise too, we have no faith. That's what the people are saying. No matter how glibly you speak to us of processing fields and vineyards and give mitzvots concerning them. In reality, you have not yet brought us into the land. Your promise regarding the children will prove to be false, just as you promised to the fathers proved to be false. Now, this is what it gets interesting. It says, do you think you can blind us not to see things as they are? So when it talks about do you ought to bore the eyes of these people, what Hirsch is saying is, do you think you can blind us to not see what's really happening? But what I found interesting is that Sforno actually shares something very similar with that statement. It says, Sforno renders this, do you think you can blind us to your failures? In other words, that's what they were saying. That is the connotation in the Hebrew. You have to really see this and appreciate it, folks, where the heart of the people were. And all this concerning this, folks, we sit in here and we can read about it now. And some of us may giggle and laugh and maybe even be critical about the attitude towards Israel, towards Moses, rather. But the reality is, given the circumstances that Israel was under, folks, I believe that each and one of us in this room would probably would have done the exact same thing. Why do I say that? Well, because we only have kind of like a little foreshadow of it, and we see a lot of that going on. A lot of us, within our hearts, we have these attitudes. We're comparing where we are now to where we came from. That's a big mistake to begin with. That's what they were doing. They were comparing the wilderness experience to their time in Egypt. They were not thinking where they were going, but rather they were thinking where we came from, where we are now, and that's that, and it ends there. So this is kind of like what we're looking at because, again, the wilderness is not a place of comfort. It's not a place where most human beings are going to want to be anyways. It is a tough place to be. So this is where the Father is going to test us. So look, Korah wanted the priesthood, right? Dathan and Abimaram wanted to go back to their land flowing with milk and honey, which is Egypt. I'm kind of summarizing in here what's taking place, the scenario. You got Korah, who's leading the whole thing. He wants the priesthood, so he's got his own personal agenda. But then he kind of pushes all these people so that they can back him up and you know, kind of pursue their own agendas. You got Dathan and Abiramaran who want to go back to Egypt. Selfishness, pride, and fear, folks. Selfishness, pride, and fear cause Israel to be divided and susceptible to spiritual attacks. This is where the enemy now can have power and can infiltrate into the camp. How is it that the Nahash, the serpent, was able to make it into the Garden of Eden? How? Wasn't Adam supposed to be Shamar in the garden? Okay, within the camp, we need to do the same thing. But even further more than the camp, Within yourself, you need to be doing the same thing. And one of the things that we need to be careful, folks, is selfishness and pride. I'm telling you, these two are the root of all evil. You know, thinking about it, what was the first evil in the world, in the universe, period? Pride. It wasn't murder. It wasn't theft. It wasn't even eating of the fruit because the fall happened before the fruit. So think about it. The very first 
if you want to call it transgression, was pride. That was Satan's, and actually it still is, Satan's logo, if you want to call it. Pride. That's what got him thrown out of the heavenlies. And pride is still something that today consumes us like a cancer, folks. It enables us from doing things, from serving one another. It enables us from being content where God has us in the season that he has us. I mean, in reality, it's the root of everything. It opens doors. That's why I put it in here, susceptible to spiritual attacks. Because it opens doors for all other kinds of evil. Murder, lying, envy, coveting, all of it stems from pride. Selfishness stems from pride. It's one of the character traits that's a signature for the enemy. Now think about this for a minute. Do you really want to possess that? If that is his, if that is his character trait, do we really want to possess that trait within us? Because who we identifying with, folks? Think about it. Romans 16, 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. What does it say in here? Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Yeshua, the Messiah, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk, kind of like with Korah, and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Amazing. But what I think is even more amazing that we don't tend to do today because we feel that we're not being really godly people if we avoid them. Because we feel that avoiding them is not a good godly character trait. Well, guess what, folks? If you invite that viper into your bedroom... Okay? He's going to bite you. You toy with a viper, he's going he's gonna to kill you. So, this is why he says, watch out for the ones who are creating division. Avoid them like the plague, folks. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. That's actually commanded, by the way. That's a commandment. Avoid them. Because ultimately what's going to end up happening is, they're going to end up getting you involved. One way or the other, you're going to get involved with the gossip, and you're going to end up removing yourself at the same time. And trust me, folks, I have witnessed this, and I've seen it personally in my life. It is better to do what the Scripture says. Avoid them. So, number 1619, Adonai answered Moses, tell the assembly to move away. Now, this is who's speaking here. Okay, I'm going to go back because, well, one may argue, okay, but that's Paul speaking. Maybe he was speaking frequently. Okay, well, interesting. Right there in this parasha, the very first thing, Adonai, that is Hashem, yod heh said to Moses, tell the assembly, that is the adat, the congregation, the witness, to move away from the homes of Korah, Dayton, and Abiram. Moshe got up and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the leaders of Israel followed him. There he said to the assembly, Leave the tents of these wicked men. Do, don't touch anything that belongs to them, or you may be swept away in all their sins. Very interesting. You know, 
one may say, well, this is the Old Testament where we just read in Romans that Paul is advocating the exact same thing. Right here. Exactly. It's like a paraphrase of what Romans, Rashaul uh, uh, is advocating to the Romans. Or the, the, the congregation in Romans. So, let's look at this in Hebrew. It says, Daber el ha'edat. That is, speak to the, uh, to the witness, by the way. This doesn't even say the congregation, the birth of congregation here is the edah, the witness. Okay? Speak to the daber el edah leomer. Now it says in here, healu, right? Misaviv. Now listen to this. This is very interesting. It says, misaviv le mishkan korach, datan be abiram. Do you see what it says in here? You might not understand because you don't understand Hebrew. But it says in here, that uh, speak to the witness and saying to them, Le Mishkan Korah. The Mishkan of Korah. Literally, that's what it's saying. So let me go back. Tell this assembly to move away from the homes of Korah. Well, that word there for homes is a very poor translation. It literally is saying the Mishkan, the tabernacle of Korah. So, what is it that Hazal saw with this whole thing with Mishkan? I guess it caught my attention. I'm sure it did with Hazal by far. So, let's see it here. And IBN Ezra says this The Hebrew word for is Mishkan, and it is possible that Korah had already erected a competing sanctuary or a place of assembly. Now, you guys remember that uh, they, were, they had the tabernacle. You know, there was a tabernacle that they were carrying. Of course, the glory of Hashem was in the tabernacle. So, according to IBN Ezra, the fact that they call it the Mishkan of Korah is indicating that Korah might have erected a tabernacle similar to that of Moses and compel people to come and worship there, in other words. Kind of following along with the spirit of Jezebel. Very, very similar. So, now let's continue here. It's verse 26. Leave these tents of these wicked men. Don't touch anything that belongs to them, or you may be swept away in the sins. Now, what's interesting is that word don't touch in the 1828 Webster means to relate to, to concern yourself with, or to meddle with. What God was telling them is don't meddle with these people, don't intermix with them, and don't be all concerned about them. Don't be like a Lot's wife and be looking back, concerning yourself for them. Because what's going to happen is you're going to get the wrath. You know, one of the things that you'll learn when you come to Torah, you learn to grow in a little bit of thick skin. Because it's not that it's being crude or cold. It's not tolerating wickedness at the end of the day. As a matter of fact, the proverb says that one, you know, we all, we all know this proverb. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? But do you know that in the same proverbs it talks about that the beginning of the fear of the Lord is to hate evil? And the same contrast with that. So don't feel bad by hating evil. You're supposed to. It's a good thing. Okay? Yeshua hated evil. Let's put it that way. If you don't believe me, go to the book of John. When it says that he was very, very mad. And what did he do? When he went into the temple and they were selling things? Uh-huh. Yeah. 
Yeah, he really loved evil, right? He was really tolerable of evil. Yeah. So anyway, so in here it says, don't relate to, don't concern, don't meddle yourself with them. 2 Corinthians 6.17, coming in agreement with this. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says Hashem, and do not touch. Interesting. What is this lingo about touching? And Corinthians says, do not touch what is unclean and I shall receive you. Let's go back. And here in verse 26, it says, leave the tents of these wicked men. Don't touch anything that belongs to them or you may be swept away in their sins. This is literally an echoing of 2 Corinthians 6.17. Now when we read 2 Corinthians 6.17, we're going to be thinking about this parasha, hopefully. Because this goes back to this Torah portion when he says, don't touch and separate yourself from these people, these wicked men. And I shall receive you. So what we'll do now, folks, is we're going to conclude with the establishment of holy order, folks. And that's one of the things that the Father is doing. And through this whole journey of the wilderness, if you notice, through this whole journey, is what we see is fallouts. We've seen unfaithfulness. We've seen people basically lose their minds in the wilderness. And through every topic and every season of the wilderness, the Father is exposing, but not just exposing, establishing holy order. Now, in this week's parasha, we see that there was what? An uprising against the leadership. Is that okay to do? Absolutely not. The Lord is now revealing in here what He desires. An establishment of holy order. Guess what, folks? How many of us want to see the Messiah return back? Well, in Judaism, it's very understood that to the Messiah, in order for the Messiah to return back, we need to usher him back. So we usher him back by doing mitzvot, by doing good deeds, by doing what's right, by being obedient. We usher him. We motivate him to come back. Well, one of the first things that we see here in the wilderness, folks, whether we like it or not, is establishment of holy order. There needs to be reverence for leadership. There needs to be reverence for holy order, period. Because today it's been treated as something that's very common. As a matter of fact, I, I submit to you that most of us have more reverence for the worldly things than the godly things, unfortunately. We revere more a doctor. We, we, we revere more a singer, a worldly singer of that, than we do a man of God. Folks, that's not good in the eyes of the Lord. We need to revere more the man of God, the ones who are toiling for his kingdom. And I'm not just talking about pastors, I'm talking about teachers. I'm talking about people who are going in the mission field, who are giving the good news of the Word of God. We need to revere these people more than your movie stars in Hollywood, than your pop singers in the radio, than your doctors and your lawyers and whoever else you idolize out there. This is all about the establishment of holy order, folks. You want to be a holy people, start establishing holy order, get reverence to the holy people. You know, and, and today we unfortunately have a bad attitude because, again, a few bad apples did abuse the system, and now everything is bad. We don't want to, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to be, now we feel that we're idolizing them. Please, spare me. Even Yeshua said, well, you bring this offering to your governor in one of his parables? Bring this offering, a laying animal, to your governor and see if he will accept it. We need to have that reverence for, again, holy order, folks. So Numbers 18, 1 and 5 says, So Hashem said to Aaron, your, 
you and your sons and your father's house with you shall bear iniquity connected with the sanctuary and you and your sons and with you shall bear iniquity connected with your priesthood bring your brother also your brothers also the tribe of levi the tribe of your father that they may join you and minister to you while you and your sons with you are before the tent of testimony they shall keep guard over you and over the whole tent but shall not come near the vessels of the sanctuary or to the altar lest they die and you die they shall join you and keep guard over the tent of meeting for all the service of the tent and no outsider shall come near you and you shall keep guard over the sanctuary that keep guard it means about hedging and protecting shamar you shall keep guard over the sanctuary and over the altar that they may never again be wrath on the people of Israel. You know, we can also even read this as you shall keep guard over the sanctuary and over the altar. You know, the sanctuary also is talking about your body as well, prophetically speaking. And the altar is also referring it to your heart. You need to shamar your heart. You need to guard your heart. Just like you need to guard your sanctuary, folks. When you read these things, don't be so rigid and tunnel vision. Let's see this through the eyes of the Father and how He sees it as well. He is not just talking about a building, but He is talking about a vessel that it's you who has an altar, which is your heart. What are you bringing into your heart? You need to guard and protect your heart. Amen? So that there may be no wrath again in the people of Israel. And we'll conclude with this last one in here. Jeremiah 23.4, talking about the reestablishment of holy order that Moses commanded the people of Israel. In Jeremiah 23.4, we see a lot, some of the fulfillment of this. And it says, I will set shepherds. Notice that it says in plural. I will sh set shepherds over them who will care for them. And they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares Hashem. So a time is coming, and I believe that it's already here that he is establishing shepherds, he is establishing teachers, he is establishing meek people who are going to prepare his kingdom to be able to usher the return of the Mashiach, folks. I want to challenge each and one of you here today that you will be a part of that. Because, folks, you know, as the world says, you only have one life to live. Well, I believe you do in this world, okay, in this world, in this kingdom. Yeah, make the best out of it in this kingdom. You know, instead of seeking your worldly pursuits and your own ambition, what about, what about, have you ever sit down and thought about how can I benefit the kingdom of Hashem? How can I better that instead? Because it's always easy to think about us, folks. Self-gratification, it's very easy. But it's hard when we have to think outside of us, when we have to think about others. And... I will submit to you folks that if we live by this model every day, the Father is going to exalt you as the Word says. He will exalt you in its due time. You just need to be patient, fulfill your call. Start, first of all, by relinquishing pride and selfishness because we don't want to partake of any of that spirit of Korah and humbling ourselves before the mighty hand of God so that He can exalt us in due day. Amen? All right, so we're going to go into Korah. Now we see here is the rebellion and how we're going to connect the half Torah to the Torah portion. So we see why do people rebel is really a really good question and why we're going to find out why people rebel. 
Uh, so here in, in the story or in the saga of, of Numbers, uh, they were sentenced for 40 years. It was pretty much a life sentence because none of them were going to be able, that first generation was not going to be able to get out of the wilderness alive and actually see the promised land except for the two spies that gave the righteous report. So they remembered their track record and didn't want to follow Moses and Aaron anymore. This is pretty much a summary of what the Lord had shown me as I was doing my studies. But there is something that is actually, there's more than just that. So in the Torah connection, we see a group of people that come against the chosen of God. The first one is Moses and Aaron, which is the elite chosen that God has said, these are the people that are going to lead my nation to righteousness. So we also see in Samuel, in the book of Samuel, where they rejected Samuel himself, who also was chosen as the spiritual leader to lead the people in righteousness. So we see that the rebellion against the elite anointed men of Elohim, and they dare not to... But one thing that they dare not to do, because their complaint was against what God has done. They Did Moses and Aaron literally bring them out of Egypt to die? No, they were actually following the orders of Hashem. So it was not the act of man that put him in that position, but they chose to put the blame on men. Because you, won't, you yourself are not going to take it out on God, you're going to take it out on what we call the face of God. And what is the face of God? The face of God is the chosen elect human beings who he has chosen to teach his people his Torah, to teach them righteousness, the judgments, and the standards. So we rebel against the flesh. We wouldn't want to do that to the actual creator of heaven and earth. So we decide to, we would use uh, the, the faces of Elohim would be the prophets. Yeshua is the, is the number one example we have the pastors, the high priests, the elders, the leaders, the righteous teachers, uh, uh, the teachers that he, that the Lord Himself elect. So one of where we don't always have the same reason to rebel. There are oh, there are other reasons to rebel, uh, it, but it is always a fleshly reason. There's always going to be a cause that we do not put our thoughts in captive, and by not putting our thoughts in captive, will then lead to another thought of unrighteousness which will then lead to rebellions but one thing that we do see that is common through it's a common thread through all of them is that we are seeing vulnerability we saw in the in in the wilderness that they felt vulnerable that vulnerability fueled the fear fear then fueled the, the, the stupid choices and the stupid choices are rebelling or making a, a choice to rebel against the the headship or the anointed of God so we see here in the half Torah cycle, we also see the same theme. We have the vulnerability, which then fear, uh, fuels fear. By fueling fear, we're fueling rebellion. So it's if you're feeling, if you're not holding your thoughts captive, you're going to fall victim of one of these cycles, which then makes you commit a stupid choice or make an action that will then cause you to be outside of the covering of the Lord. But let's go ahead and, and set the stage for the half Torah. So the half Torah here we have uh, the, that Israel had just experienced about 500 years, give or take, of the book of Judges. And if you've read the book of Judges, they've, had, they've done what was good in their eyes. Or they have done right what was in their eyes. So for centuries of doing things that were right in their own eyes, which is idol, uh, idol worshiping, Conducting business like the nations did, perverting justice, etc., etc. Things that the Father said that you are not to do. You're a peculiar nation. I have specific standards that you are to live by. 
and these are the results if you follow these standards. But they did not like those. They liked the, prosper, the prospering of their neighboring nation, so they chose to live like their neighbors. And by doing so, they were handed over to their enemies time and time again. So now we're going to go ahead and go to the book of Samuel. And Samuel was judging Israel. So here we have life in Israel didn't change at all while Samuel judged them. They still sinned. They still were in that same cycle of idolatry, perverting justice, doing things that are wrong in the eyes of the Lord. They were handed over to their enemies. The Ark of the Covenant was even allowed to be stolen by the Philistines. We also see that things were more normal. Rebellion, sin, being handed over to their enemies, crying out, being saved. It, they went through that cycle even in the time of Samuel. So why a king now? After all that is said and done, why do they want a king? After the, the 500 years that they were being led by the judges. Now if you do know, the Lord ruled his nation by elders, the, the 70 elders, the Sanhedrin, the elders at the gates. If you had a problem in your town, if you had a problem, you go to the gates. At the gates, that's where the Torah was, and then the judgment would be pronounced based on the book that Moses wrote, the standards that God gave his people. From there, if you couldn't, if you couldn't get to the bottom of it, you would then go to, Jeru to wherever the Ark of the Covenant was and get the Urim and Tumim to make the judgment, pronounce the judgment based on the high priest. But who is ultimately giving the judgment or passing the judgment? The Lord, the creator of heaven and earth, Hashem, he himself was ruling and judging his people and passing the judgments on, on these cases. So we didn't have to have, there was a, a very peculiar or specific way of, of leading his people. So through this elite group of people, which the judges and the priestly system, our, our Ark of the Covenant, the tabernacle, God ruled Israel and they were, they were the spiritual leaders of the nation. They set the tone for the rest of the nation. So the headship, the, the hierarchy went straight to the king. And the king was Hashem himself. It was no other but him. So this is no different than before. But it appears that Israel got tired of the same old routine. And they ended up going, uh, they wanted a change. And they, the change was that they wanted a fleshly king. They, they wanted to change it that they no longer wanted the invincible God to rule over them. They wanted something more permanent in their eyes. More permanent in the sense that I can see him, uh, he can speak to me, and I can hear him. So they wanted something more permanent, and the nation of Israel got tired of the system that they currently had, and that's what they had sinned against the Lord. So why a king? So Hashem intended to rule his people via the temple, the system that I just explained earlier. And that is supposed to have been for the entire time that the nation of Israel would be on this earth. So for Israel to ask for a king, they were telling God that he, that his ways of leading his people is not good enough and that only a king can rule Israel. So the spiritual leaders were not sufficient. They didn't want somebody to, to, who was led by God to judge and rule over them. Uh, that was the job of Moses, the priests, the prophets, and all who occupied the office. Uh, so Israel sees their opportunity to challenge the order of leadership. And Sam, at this point, they're seeing that Samuel is getting older. And as Samuel is getting older, they're getting, they're getting nervous. Because Samuel has sons that were not right, quite right. Uh, they, were, they were perverting justice. Uh, they, were, they, were not they were not righteous 
leaders per se. Uh, they had the opportunity to, to secure the righteous headships that would cover them. So they, they didn't want, they were, they were afraid that if Samuel dies and he passes away, then this new perverted judgment or these dishonest men would then lead us. So they, they felt vulnerable, which then led to a fear, and a fear that was misplaced because did not God time and time again show them that he would raise a righteous judge in their favor if they had repented and was walking in righteousness. So why did they misplace, why did they have a misplaced fear? They should have never had it. They should have had trusted that the Father would have handled his people and would have ensured that they that the next the next ruler or the next judge would be a righteous man and not so much a wicked man. So here we're going to go ahead and, and why Israel rejects Hashem and Hashem's Israel. Uh, we hear that Israel's covering through the judges and priests is we have to understand that God no longer would rule them. them their request for a new king is pretty much saying I'm replacing God so for a more permanent uh, fleshly rules. So something that is more tangible for them to, to, to hold on to. So the heart of the people determined if, if Israel had a judge or not. We have to understand that Israel ne did not have a constant judge at the, in the history of Israel. What does that mean? That God allowed Israel to be without order, meaning without covering, if Israel was in rebellion. They would pay for their wickedness by being handed over to their enemies, but when they had repented of their ways and humbled themselves and got rid of the idolatry, then Hashem raised a righteous man, a covering, or a woman to deliver them from their enemies. So here the righteous judge or the covering would give order to Israel, um, would give order to Israel, but Israel wasn't always ruled by a judge. Only when Israel needed to be delivered from their enemies was there a judge raised in the land. From the beginning, God intended to be to rule Israel by himself. So he always said, if you keep my commandments, if you obey my laws, you would be my people and I would be your God. And all that was required of them was to be obedient to the Torah. That's the only thing they needed to do was, was have the written word in their hearts, obey, worship the Father in righteousness, and be able to love, love thy neighbor as yourself. And it's not that they didn't have the rulings with them because they had elders, they had judges in the court, in the, in the gates to keep this order. They had synagogues within their towns teaching them the, the law of Moses, the, the Torah of Hashem, and how to be righteous people and to maintain the order, the righteous order. So they didn't do this in ignorance. All that was required of them was to be obedient. So Israel was to be a people who had no earthly ruler, because if you had an earthly ruler, it's a man of the flesh. And a man of the flesh will always, always, rule by the flesh one way or the other and we have history in our scriptures referring to the the kings that were raised in the time of the books of kings and the chronicles and how wicked they were because they were of the flesh but god knows mankind so he gave a torah for the kings even though he never intended for israel to ever have a king he still wrote standards of what a king should be how he should rule and what are his specific torahs so out of those 613 not all of them do we keep because not every one of us are kings and not all of us are going to have to abide by the standards of a king. So Israel got tired of the system and wanted a more secure defense against their enemies and requested a king. But with a king, there would always be a king in the land 
and God would no longer rule over them. So the king would set the tone of Israel because he would be ruling by the flesh. This is just the standard of men and God under, and God knows this. So now we're going to go ahead and look at the stupid choices that were made. So Israel wanted to be in control of their own destiny and their future. Isn't that most of us? We all want to have the control of what happens to us. We want to be able to, how much is our income? How much is, what kind of wife we're going to have? I got these standards for my specific wife. And I have to live here to find her or live there to find her. And then after I find her, I need to live this certain way. And I have to make these certain choices. I need to have this 401k, the IRA, the investments. I don't know the names, but you understand. So we have to have our our safety net. We have to have our nest egg, our comforts to secure us. Why? Again, because vulnerability leads to fear, leads to rebellion, which then leads to stupid choices. So here we are with the foolish choices of the nations. I'm going to give you a a vision. I'm going to try to summarize the heart of Israel at the time and the fear. And I'm going to see if I can do a, a good job on trying to describe why the choices that they have made still apply to us today even though it's it we're not in that time frame it can still be transferred to to today so a nation ruled by an invisible god and being restricted with a bunch of do's and don'ts looks foolish to the world yes or no do have we not been told you're gonna do what you're gonna follow you know what you're gonna not work on sabbath what are you taught this is foolish to those who don't understand so we're going to go ahead and see uh, what happens through the natural eyes with Israel. So through the natural eyes, they're being conquered by kings. So your neighboring empire with a king that comes into your territory, kills your wife, kills your children, kills your livestock, and enslaves what is next, what is left, brings you into bondage, making you slaves, burns your houses, takes over your fields, and, take, and taxes your good to you etc etc so now a what what this is the mindset that these people are in you don't even know why because it's not like there is a big banner or promotion on every tree saying you have obeyed you're going to be handed over to your neighbor you have obeyed the kings are coming the kings are coming because you disobeyed because you're being wicked this is not the prophet would speak but years would come and go before you got conquered so you're in the middle of the night, all of a sudden this guy is with a sword and is, ta- is taking your things and is invading you, taking you, taking your children, taking your wives, and you're being subdued by this nation. What is going through your mind? You don't know why, because people are not studying the Torah. They're too busy looking at how the world does things so that they can also prosper. So they're not even in the books. They're not even studying the words. They're not even studying what God expects of his people because they want to prosper. So you're simply a victim to a mightier and and a stronger neighbor. This is what logic is doing to our thinking. So we're sitting here and we're trying to analyze why. So then as we're analyzing, we are looking around and we're realizing, well, our neighbors, our neighboring kingdom has kings, has generals, a stronger army, has armor, has horses, and has weapons. So instant victory, they're seeing, well, this is why they're conquering us. 
We're primitive. We don't have horses. We don't have a king. We don't have the things that our neighboring kingdom has who is conquering us. So we are vulnerable. We are we're susceptible to this nation who decides one day to get up and submit us. So, but what do you think? Then after you, you're analyzing and you see what they have. What you are looking at is you're remembering that the forefather is speaking of something of glory and of honor of being the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The honor of being set apart of a group of chosen people. But yet you're being destroyed by the neighboring kingdom. Where is my glory? Where is my honor? Where is this? Where's the pride that I keep hearing about my nation? About us going into this flowing, this land with flowing with milk and honey. And all you can think of is that you have no king, you have no general, you have no commander, but that you have a religious system, a dude in a turban and a tali telling you that what the invincible God says. Isn't that what it is true today? We, we are being led by a spiritual God. This is all in the flesh. This is what people battle about this walk. They don't want to do this walk because I'm not prospering in this walk. I am not becoming a, a I'm, not, I'm not having the things that make you prosperous in the eyes of the world. I just see religious attributes. And a lot of people struggle with these things. So they, you, you get sick of it. You get tired of it. You no longer want the tomorrow promises. You want the promises now today. So what are we doing now? So you go ahead and, and we go to, we, we get a posse. Let me get to that point. So we get a posse and we ride. So we raise up ourselves a leader that will satisfy, that will line up with my, how I'm thinking. And not only am I gonna, I'm going to join myself with others who have the same mindset, I'm going to, to create this posse so that I can then have the nation that I believe we deserve or the promises that I are interpreted in my flesh, prospering and, and being such a great nation is XYZ. So I'm going to heap up for myself a king that will deliver, that will give me the promises that I believe I should have. So what are we, are we any different in this generation than the first generation? Absolutely not. Our forefathers have removed themselves from Judah and the Torah because of the vulnerability that led to fear. If, we, if you have not done your studies as when the birthing of the Christian church, you really need to do it. In 130 AD, between that time and 150 and then 300, there was a separation, and it was because they were being vulnerable. They were being attacked because of their faith, their belief in Yeshua. They were being separated because if you didn't follow it this way, you're going to be attacked. So because of vulnerability leading, leading to fear, they heaped up. They said, okay, we're not going to be your victims anymore. We're going to do it this way. And now the birthing of Christianity gave them that uh, sense or that false sense of security because they were no longer going to be they weren't. They were no longer going to be persecuted by any, by their neighbors, by any religious groups. They were no longer to be persecuted. But believe it or not, that was the birthing based on rebellion. And we have to be very careful of our hearts. What our hearts, what vulnerability that leads to fear brings birth to, because it will be in the spirit of rebellion. So, how about the things in the Torah? So, about those who have already recognized that Torah is truth and have restored proper worship and has joined themselves back to Torah, back to Judah, once more. We still walk in the spirit of rebellion. And you can. You can still walk in the spirit of rebellion, even if you're walking Torah, 
even if you're doing Sabbaths and observing Sabbaths, because the re rebellion is birthed in the flesh. And if we are not watching our minds and not circumcising the thoughts that come in our hearts and are not securing peace, meaning God is my God, I will follow and believe that he is going to sustain me and take care of me and he is going to watch over me. If I do not keep those thoughts captive and put them in the right place, we still can rebel against our creator even after coming to this walk. So we find ourselves vulnerable and not trusting in the system that Hashem has established for his people. We can rebel and not even know that that is what we're doing. Feeling vulnerable and allowing fear to rule us can make us choose to walk away from the covering. We can choose because of that feeling of vulnerability. I'm no longer going to, I'm, I'm going to step away from the church, from the congregation, from the synagogue. I'm going to disagree with the pastor. I'm going to disagree with the rabbis. I'm going to even prematurely remove myself from the covering of my parents to secure a future and a destiny. For example, Ruth's father-in-law, in order to secure livelihood in, in the book of Ruth, there was a famine. He left to Moab so that he can supply food and sustenance and make a living for his family because there was a famine in the promised land. God never told him to leave. This is what the sages tell us, that why he took him and his two sons' lives was because they chose to walk out of the promised land to go to Moab so that they can secure free, so that they can secure their future and their destiny by a place that there is provisions. And we have to make sure that we are not walking outside of the outside of our walk because of uh, vulnerability, fear, which then can also that will lead to our destruction through rebellion. So for the conclusion. We need to check our hearts and we need to work on building up our trust and assurance, which is bitachon, is the subject that we've been on for a while now, in, in Hashem and the leaders that He has placed before us, so that we don't find ourselves going along with the wrong crowd and wanting to overthrow the, the anointing that God has placed before us, the, the covering that He has placed over us. And stay where you are. If that's where the Father has you, you have to trust that that's where He put you. Do not allow vulnerability that will then lead to fear to cause you to rebel and remove yourself because it's not going according to what you think is right or you don't think it's the path that will, that will bring you what, what your flesh needs. We need to circumcise our hearts and we need to start working on removing that lack of trust and that lack of faith that is within us that will lead us to then rebel against the Lord because what happened, the earth opened up and swallowed them. That would be the worst case scenario. But there are times where you will feel the absence of the Lord if you are walking outside of his covering, if you're walking outside of his timing, if you're doing things that you need to secure yourself, you're going to feel that absence. And if you're a chosen one and, he, and you are to be in this walk, you'll feel that absence and then you're going to go and cleave to him. But you have wasted so many years in that absence because you've chosen to walk out in rebellion. And that is your Haftorah. Our New Testament portion, just like our Haftor portion and our Torah portion, are focusing very much on the heart of mankind and our positions within the kingdom. And we're going to focus today on the, on the, the parable of the ten minas. It is a parable that is also repeated in Matthew. Uh, it is Matthew 25. Uh, somewhere I have it. Maybe I didn't write it down. It's in Matthew chapter 25. He talks about the ten minas. Um, in any event, it's, it's, it's basically the same parable from, from the same teacher. 
using using different uh, different principles. He talks about the ten talents and the ten minas. The minas are the talents that he gives us. It's the it's 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 that which we um, which which we are able to take out into the world. It is our position in the world where we can bring others into the kingdom to expand the kingdom. And that isn't that the purpose of the kingdom? Our job here on the earth is to expand the kingdom. So let's back up just a little bit. We're going to talk about um, service and, the, and, and, our, and our place in service. Today we heard the Torah portion of Korah. And Korah had a very specific task within the kingdom. And not just within the kingdom, but, but in the Levitical priesthood because he was a Levite. Okay? In Numbers chapter 4, verses 4 through 15, we read, This is the service of the sons of Kehath. In the tent of appointment, the most set-apart matters. At the breaking of camp, Aaron and his sons shall come and they shall take down the covering veil and cover the ark of the witness with it. And they shall put on it a covering of fine leather and spread over that an all-blue wrapper and shall insert its poles. And on the table of showbread, they shall spread a blue wrapper, put, shall put all of the dishes on it and the ladles and the bowls and the jars for pouring and the showbread on it. And they shall spread over them a scarlet wrapper and cover the same with a covering of fine leather and shall insert its poles and shall take the blue wrapper and cover the lampstand of the light with its lamps and its snuffers and its trays and all its oil vessels by which they serve it. And they shall put it with all its utensils in a covering of fine leather and put it on a bar. And over the golden slaughter place they shall spread a blue wrapper, cover it with a covering of fine leather and shall insert poles. Now I'm, gonna, I'm not going to read the whole thing. He continues to talk about everything that's used in the tent of appointment for the service of the Lord. The sons of Levi, the sons of Aaron, are the ones who are going to, going to take all of these. They're going to cover them because they're holy. They are so holy that only the sons of Aaron are able to play, lay their eyes on them and are able to put their hands on them. Okay, And in, and in verse 15 we read, And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the set-apart objects and all the furnishings of the set-apart place, the breaking of camp, then the sons of Kehath, including Korah and all of his children and all of his brothers, shall come to lift them, but let them not touch that which is set apart, lest they die. These matters are the burdens of the son of Kehath in the tent of appointment. Okay? And then in verse, uh, verse uh, I'm sorry, chapter 16 of Numbers, verses 1 through 3, we again read, And Korah, son of Yitzar, son of Kehath, son of Levi, took both Dathan and Aviram, the sons of Eliav, and On, and son of Pelath, sons of Reuben, and they rose up before Moshe with some of the children of Israel. Every single one of us in the kingdom of Hashem have a very specific assignment. Moshe's assignment was to lead the, lead the people out of Egypt. We read in Exodus chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. And now, come, Hashem speaking to him. And now come, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Mitzrayim. And Moshe said to Elohim, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Mitzrayim? Moses still questioned his position. There's nothing wrong with wondering. It's about our heart. And are we really, are, are, we, are we coming against what he's saying? Or are we just kind of questioning? Are you sure this is what he got to me? Right? In verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 10, Moshe says to Hashem, O Hashem, I am not a man of words, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant. For I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. The difference between Korah and Moshe is that Moshe was asking in humility. He didn't think that he was worthy. Korah, on the other hand, felt that he was more than worthy of taking over the leadership of the nation of Israel. 
Moshe resisted because he had a lack of confidence and because of his humility. Korah, the son of Yitzhar, son of Kehath, son of Levi, Richard taught this in the Torah portion, I thought this was interesting that he and I both picked up on this. It says, he took Dathan and Abiram and on all sons of Reuben. Well, that word took, as he said earlier, it is the word lachach. It is a primitive root. He said that it, it, it has to do with separating, right? But it's also about uh, buying, okay? Richard talked about the fact that they were coerced. They were purchased with the words that were spoken. They were convinced, because their hearts weren't right, that maybe they should line up with what Korah is saying and with what Korah is doing. He used the fancy words. He was able to flatter them. He purchased them. He used them. He won them over. And those are all definitions of that word, lachach. Korah rose up in his pride, just like the king of Zor. And before I read the scripture, Zor, it is the, the Hebrew, uh, Strong's H6864, it's, it, it, it's a hard pebble, a flint or a stone as if pressed harder to a point by implication of use. It's a knife. So the word sore. But unfortunately, it's also from the root word sewer. Sewer. Which means adversary. And isn't that interesting? Since what he did was just like Hasatan, the adversary. Just as Richard taught earlier during his torch portion today. Ezekiel 28. And the word of Hashem came to me saying, Son of man, say to the prince of sore. Thus said Master Hashem, because your heart is lifted up. And you say, I am El, I am God. I sit in the seat of Elohim in the heart of the seas, whereas you are a man and not El, though you set your heart as the heart of Elohim. Look, you are, are you wiser than Daniel? Has no secret been hidden from you? By your wisdom and understanding, you have made riches for yourself and gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. By your great wisdom, by your trade, you have increased your riches, and your heart is lifted up because of your riches. Therefore, thus said the Master Hashem, Because you have set your heart as the heart of Elohim, therefore see, I am bringing against you strangers, the ruthless ones of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the loveliness of your wisdom, and they shall profane your splendor. Wise and beautiful was the cherub who was placed above the throne of Hashem, who oversaw everything in the kingdom. And yet, because pride was found in him, he was kicked out of that kingdom. It goes on to say, Down into the pit they shall bring you, and you shall die the death of the slain in the heart of the seas. Would you still say before him who slays you, I am Elohim? Or as you are a man and not El in the, in the hand of him who kills you? The death of the uncircumcised you shall die by the hands of foreigners. For I have spoken, declares the Master Hashem. And interestingly enough, because Hasatan used to be in the service of the Lord, he should have had the circumcised heart. And his heart became stony, rocky like a pebble, unable to be molded. Ezekiel goes on to say in, chapter tw in, in verse 12, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the sovereign of Sor, and you shall say to him, Thus said the master Hashem, You were Sealing up a pattern complete in wisdom. Sorry, you were sealed up in a pattern complete in wisdom and perfect in loveliness. There's that wisdom and that beauty. 
You were in, the, in Eden, the garden of Elohim. Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz and diamond, beryl, shoham, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, emerald, and gold. The workmanship of your settings and mountings was prepared for you on the day that you were created. You were the anointed cherub that covered, and I placed you. You were on the set-apart mountain of Elohim. You walked up and down in the midst of stones of fire. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the greatness of your trade, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. So I thrust you from the mountain of Elohim, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your loveliness. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I threw you to the earth. I laid you before sovereigns and to look at you. You profaned your set-apart places by your many crookednesses, by the unrighteousness of your trading. Therefore I brought forth fire from your midst. It has devoured you, and I turn you, turned you to ashes upon the earth before the eyes of all who see you. All who knew you among the peoples were astonished at you. Waste you shall be and cease to be forever. Hasatan himself was one of the most beautiful of the angels. And he was given a place so great that he was above all of the other angels. And yet that wasn't good enough for him. He wanted the entire kingdom. It was not satisfactory. It was not Dainu that he was given the place that Hashem had given him. He wanted so much more. And that's our lesson all day today. It has been about our hearts and, and being, being satisfied, wholly satisfied with the place that Hashem has put us. Because He trusts us in the place where we are. He's given us the abilities, the strength, the wisdom, the understanding necessary to do what He's put us there to do. And failure is going to come when we seek by our own hand to do something greater and different than what He set for us. You know, Egypt has it right. We can walk out into this world and we can be given a place in an employer. And that employer has faith in us because of our abilities and our strengths and our talents the experience that we have. And when we show that we can do so much in that job, then they'll allow us to do something different. But if sometimes we seek greater power, more money, we're setting ourselves up for failure. Because maybe we're not ready for it. Early in my career, I did that. It was always, oh, I need, I need, I need the next level up because I need more money. And I'd always fall on my face. I'm now in a position of clerkship, and I love it. Even with my experience, I'm right where I need to be because He put me there. He put me here and He put me there. Wherever I am, it's because He put me there. And that's sufficient for me. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 14 through 25. Paul writes, For indeed the body is not one member but many. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, does it therefore not belong to the body? But do we walk on our hands? Some people might. I don't. I don't have the strength. 
If the ear says, because I'm not an eye, does it not belong to the body? Does it therefore really not belong to the body? If all the body was an eye, where would the hearing? Where would be the hearing? And, uh, and if hearing, where would be the smelling? But now Elohim has set the members, each one of them in the body, even as he pleased. You know, we have these amazing physical bodies. They heal themselves when we put in them the right things. All of these functions that, that keep us from poisoning ourselves with even the poisons that we put in our bodies. And yet the body continues to regenerate. We replace ourselves completely. Every cell in the body has at one point been replaced. That's a beautiful thing. And yet, the heart can't be a liver. And the liver can't be a kidney. And all of the body can't be skin. Because then, how would we then cleanse ourselves? And what would we eat? How would it be processed? How would we think? Because we'd have no brain. My skin doesn't think. My flesh has desires, but it doesn't think. If they had all been one member, where would the body be? And now there are indeed many members, but one body. And the eye is unable to say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head, head to the feet, I have no need of you. Because if we didn't have feet, how would our head get anywhere? We'd stay in one place all the time. But much rather, those members of the body which are thought to be weaker are necessary. And to those of the body which we think be less respected, these we present greater respect. And our unseemly members have greater seemliness, whereas our seemly members have no need. But Elohim blended together the body, having given greater respect to that member which lacks it, that there should be no division within the body, but that the members should have the same concern for one another. So just as we've been speaking all week about the mishpacha, the body, the family, we need one another. Without the talents that each and every one of us has, what, what kind of an assembly would we be? If we all sang well, who would teach? If we all taught, who would sing? Who would prepare our PowerPoints? Who would put together the music? And who would play the, the musical instruments? Of course, we're not doing that yet, but somebody's playing those musical instruments. Imagine all of the songs that we listen to that no one could sing and no one could play the guitar or the piano. We need each and every one of the talents that he's given us as a part of one great big body. And we need to be happy with that which he's, which he's given us, with where he has placed us. Blessed be his name that this is the place where he's placed us. Because each and every one of us is blessed by one another. Words that Richard and I spoke this week. Because we are blessings unto one another. But just like he said, I will bless those who bless you. I think I'm finished. That's your New Testament today. Yiva <laughs> 
Sim Lechon 